Judges chapter 13 this morning, as we turn to worship our Lord through the preaching, the reading, the hearing of His Word. Judges chapter 13, today we are beginning a look at the life of Samson, the most prominent judge in Israel. He's given the most extensive treatment in this book, four chapters Really, about 25% of the entire book. In many ways, he is the personification of all the other judges. He is the, the judge epitome. And so, given this, we're going to take well, at least four weeks to cover his life. We're going to break for Easter in between there. But today, we come to part one of his story. Judges chapter 13 and his birth. That's page 273 if you're using a pew Bible. Judges chapter 13. Let's read the entire chapter. Brethren, this is God's word. And the people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. So the Lord gave them into the hand of the Philistines for 40 years. There was a certain man from Zorah of the tribe of the Danites whose name was Manoah. And his wife was barren and had no children. And the angel of the Lord appeared to the woman and said to her, Behold, you are barren and have not borne children, but you shall conceive and bear a son. Therefore be careful and drink no wine or strong drink and eat nothing unclean. For behold, you shall conceive and bear a son. No razor shall come upon his head, for the child shall be a Nazarite to God from the womb. And he shall begin to save Israel from the hand of the Philistines. Then the woman came and told her husband, A man of God came to me. And his appearance was like the appearance of the angel of God, very awesome. I did not ask him where he was from, and he did not tell me his name. But he said to me, Behold, you shall conceive and bear a son. So then drink no wine or strong drink, and eat nothing unclean, for the child shall be a Nazarite to God from the, day, from the womb to the day of his death. Then Manoah prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, please let this man of God whom you sent come again to us, and teach us what we are to do with this child who will be born. And God listened to the voice of Manoah, and the angel of God came again to the woman as she sat in the field, but Manoah, her husband, was not with her. So the woman ran quickly and told her husband, Behold, the man who came to me the other day has appeared to me. And Manoah arose and went after his wife and came to the man and said to him, Are you the man who spoke to this woman? And he said, I am. And Manoah said, Now when your words come true, what is to be the child's manner of life, and what is his mission? And the angel of the Lord said to Manoah, Of all that I said to the woman, let her be careful. She may not eat, not eat of anything that comes from the vine, neither let her drink wine or strong drink or eat anything, any unclean thing. All that I commanded, let her observe." Manoah said to the angel of the Lord, Please let us detain you and prepare a young goat for you. And the angel of the Lord said to Manoah, If you detain me, I will not eat of your food, but if you prepare a burnt offering, then offer it to the Lord. For Manoah did not know that he was the angel of the Lord. And Manoah said to the angel of the Lord, What is your name, so that when your words come true, we may honor you? And the angel of the Lord said to him, Why do you ask my name, seeing it is wonderful? So Manoah took the young goat with the grain offering and offered it on the rock to the Lord, to the one who works wonders, and Manoah and his wife were watching. And when the flame went up toward heaven from the altar, 
the angel of the Lord went up in the flame of the altar. Now Manoah and his wife were watching, and they fell on their faces to the ground. The angel of the Lord appeared no more to Manoah and to his wife. Then Manoah knew that he was the angel of the Lord. And Manoah said to his wife, We shall surely die, for we have seen God. But his wife said to him, If the Lord had meant to kill us, he would not have accepted a burnt offering and a grain offering at our hands, or shown us all these things, or now announced to us such things as these. And the woman bore a son and called his name Samson. The young man grew, and the Lord blessed him. And the Spirit of the Lord began to stir him in Menahneheh, Dan, between Zorah and Estelel. Amen. Such is the reading of God's Word. Bow with me as we ask God to bless the reading and the preaching of it. Our Father, we acknowledge that your word is sure and perfect and trustworthy and will abide forever. We believe it when we, when we hear you say that when your word is proclaimed, it is as if you are speaking Yourself to us. Father, would You write this Word upon our hearts? Would You use it for our good and for Your glory? We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, if there's anyone who comes close to mythological status in Scripture, surely it is Samson, right? Even when we hear the name of Samson, we tend to conjure up this He-Man type figure, right? This image, muscular and powerful and strong. He's got superhuman strength. He, he dismisses his enemies with a flick of the wrist, as it were. And following this kind of superhero He-Man type of characterization, he also has a sworn enemy, right? Who's bent on finding his secret to his power. And he has this temptress as well, this beautiful woman he falls in love with, who kind of tears him away from his true allegiance. And not only this, but he's even got his own kryptonite. The strange, long hair, power of his strength, and the, the source of his greatest weakness. Is there any other Old Testament figure so fascinating? So perplexing, so polarizing, stimulating both love and repulsion of him? Like many of the judges, all too often Samson has been elevated to hero status in our day. He's really popular among children. In fact, I was at the Bible Museum in August, uh, in September, uh, in Washington, D.C., and they had this in the children's exhibit. They had this, these two pillars, this exhibit where ki- kids can put their hands and push down the pillars of the temple, as it were, you know, commit their own suicide, kind of, you know. <laughs> it's how Samson has been glorified. He's been beautified. He's been whitewashed in our culture. And why is that? What do we know about his life? I think there's a sense in which we all kind of sympathize with his emotional energy, with his physical rage. I think there's a sense in which we identify with his, with his autonomy, his, his independence. We can identify with the fact that 
although he messes up so many times, he seems to really mean well deep down, doesn't he? We find ourselves instinctively rooting for him. We, we like Samson because we, we long to have his strength and his passion. We like Samson because we identify in the sense that we see that really deep down, he's a broken man. And he can't ever get out of his own way. He's his own worst enemy. We like Samson. We're, we're fascinated with Samson because so often, Samson is us. To put this in a theological context, Samson is us because Samson is an embodiment of Israel. And so often we are Israel. Like Samson, excuse me, like Israel, Samson has God's strength and power on his side. No enemy stands a chance against him. But although he has this otherworldly power, he has little self-control which means he's a far greater danger to himself than any other outside enemy is to him. Like Israel, Samson is fickle. He professes faith in Yahweh, but constantly falls for forbidden women. His sexual sin signifying how Israel repeatedly whored after other gods. Like Israel, Samson is stubborn. He refuses to learn his lesson again and again and again. And he's entirely unreliable. He turns here, then there, then there. Samson, then, is an embodiment of Israel as a whole. He's an embodiment, he's an embodiment of the judges of a whole, as a whole. And he's the embodiment, so often, of you and me as well. As we also live torn between two worlds. It's no wonder then that Samson, his life is so perplexing. It's, it's an enigma. It's a, it's, a, it's a paradox. His life is a paradox. He appears to be strong, but in reality, he's very weak. He appears to be free and independent. But truthfully, his power can be taken away in but a moment with just the simple cutting of his hair. And that's the picture that we get of Samson as we're introduced to him here in Judges chapter 13. Think about it. I hope you recognize that nothing of what we ordinarily think of Samson appears in this chapter. We don't get a picture here of Samson the strong, Samson the powerful, Samson destroying his enemies. Nothing in this chapter appears which we normally associate with Samson or how he appears to be on the surface. Rather, just as Samson himself is a paradox, this chapter really shows us what's most true about him. Here we see a helpless people, a sinful people. Here we see a barren woman. We see a spiritually dull man. We see obscurity. Humility, desperation. Yes, it is clear that this birth narrative sets him apart from all the other judges. His birth narrative mirrors Isaac and Jacob and Moses and Samuel and John the Baptist and Jesus. That's 
serious company. This is the birth story of a hero. But while we may be tempted to look on the outside here, the real focus of this chapter is on God. It's on God who again again shows Himself as the God of the helpless, the hopeless, the obscure, the anonymous. Again, the focus is on a God who always advances His purposes from the standpoint of human weakness, not strength. The focus here is on a God and the faith of this woman that stand kind of as the pinnacle of this story, which makes his subsequent life and failings all the more tragic. Perhaps then there's more to the Samson story than you and I have considered. That's what I hope to open up for you today as we turn to the text. Four points this morning. Really just four points of emphasis. Weakness, woman, worship, and wonder. Should be easy to remember. Weakness, woman, worship, and wonder. Notice the emphasis on weakness as this chapter opens. We read in verse 1. The people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, so the Lord gave them into the hand of the Philistines for 40 years. This should be a familiar refrain. It's the sixth time in this book that Israel has sinned and God brought judgment upon them for their sin. But I want you to notice, what what immediately follows in verse 2? The raising up of a deliverer. What's missing then from the normal cycle? We've seen it enough to know. What's missing? There's no crying out of Israel. They don't cry out in pain. They don't groan. They don't cry out for help. They don't pray. There's none of that here. Why is this? What does this teach us? Well, we speculate that it's because Israel appears to have grown accustomed to their servitude. You know, perhaps they... At this point, we're so deceived by their sin and slavery that they're comfortable with it. And they no longer really want deliverance from it, kind of like in Egypt before. You know, that that is the epitome of sin, isn't it? When sin convinces us that we don't need God, and that can take the form of morality and uh, religiosity, and also take the form of immorality and breaking of God's law, That's the epitome of sin, when we think we don't need God. That appears to be the situation of Israel at this moment. Or perhaps, maybe on the other hand, they did feel their need for God, but they thought, well, what's the use? Kind of resigned to their fate under God's chastening hand. But that too is unbelief. Giving God the silent treatment when you're in pain or in suffering or in despair. Giving up, thinking that God can't or won't do anything about it. Giving up and saying, well, God is sovereign anyway. He's just going to do what He's going to do. That also is unbelief. It's unbelief disguised as belief in God's sovereignty. Regardless of why they were silent, the point is that this silence was sinful. 
And what this shows us then is that the deliverance that God brings begins with the undeserved, unmerited mercy and favor of God. God began raising up Samson as a deliverer long before he was ever conceived, long before the people even cried out for it. And this fits the pattern, doesn't it, of Scripture? The covenant of redemption. God planned our redemption before the world was made. In divine sovereign election, God chose you in Christ and predestined you for salvation long before you were ever brought to faith, before He even created the world. Because God always seeks out His people long before we ever seek Him. This is even further highlighted when we read the specifics about Samson's birth. In verse 2, we're introduced to this man. He's named Manoah. The name is a derivative of Noah. It means rest. It's kind of ironic here. It's precisely what Israel did not have at the time, rest. And Manoah, this man who has the name of rest, actually is living under a curse because him and his wife had no children. She was barren. The paradox begins. The name of rest, but living under a curse. Here then is one of the many stories in Scripture that begin with the birth of a Savior through the, from a barren woman. Again, this highlights to us how God delights to use the weak, the powerless, the helpless, the despairing, the hopeless, so that He receives all of the glory. But I also want you to notice, too, that this woman here, Samson's mother, is never named throughout the entire account. This kind of underscores her total obscurity. She's not even important enough to be named. She's not even praying for a child. She isn't described as suffering under her barrenness. Yet totally, unexpectedly, out of the blue, God has mercy and He works salvation out of nothing. Out of barrenness. Out of deadness. This then is the paradox of Samson's life. A weak woman brings forth a strong man. An obscure woman brings forth a famous warlord. Israel has rest in name, Manoah, but not in reality. Israel has the promise of the messianic seed given to the children of Abraham, but here they are disgraced and barren and lifeless and powerless to change their fate. This is the weakness, the context from which the deliverer Samson will emerge. And this is how God delights to work salvation among his weak and helpless people. But the second thing we see here is an emphasis on the woman. The woman. We're going to come back to this um, over the next few weeks because... Really, not only are, do women play a prominent role in Judges, but they pray, play a prominent role in Samson's life. His life revolves around his relationship with four women. And the first relationship introduced here, the first woman in his life, is his mother. I want you to notice here that in verse 2, the angel of the Lord appears to his mother to announce his birth. 
He appears to his mother and not to his father. Now you may say, well, of course, she's going to bear the child, right? Doesn't she deserve to be the first to know? (laughs) She has to actually go through the labor and pains of birth. She better be the first to know, right? Of course, this is how the Lord dealt with Hannah, uh, with Samuel in 1 Samuel. This is how the Lord dealt with Mary in the birth of Jesus as well. That's true, but at the same time, I want you to see in the larger picture of things, the woman here is depicted as the one who understands all throughout. But the man is depicted as spiritually dull, slow, blind. The angel appears to the woman in verse 3-5. through She He tells her that she's going to conceive a son. She realizes that this is the angel of the Lord. That's what she tells her husband. This He is awesome. She realizes he's the angel of the Lord. But notice, when she tells her husband in verse 6-7, through notice what happens then in verse 8. Manoah perhaps is feeling a little left out. Well, I want to see the angel too. So he prays to the Lord. He says, Send this man of God to come and teach me what we're to do with this child. What's funny about this is that Lord, the angel had already told them what they were to do with the child. He told the woman that the child would be a Nazareth, which we'll consider in a moment. But that's not enough for him. He wants more info. He wants to hear it himself. So God, in His grace, hears his prayer, sends the angel back again, but... Who does the Lord send the angel back to? Verse 9, back to the woman. And not just to the woman, but while she was not with her husband. She then has to go get him. And the narrator kind of teases this out in verse 11 when, when, in how he writes that Manoah followed after his wife to the angel. He's following her physically, but the point is he's following her spiritually as well. She's taking the lead. So he gets to the angel in verse uh, 11 and 12. He asks the angel two questions. Are you the man who spoke to this woman? When your words come true, what is going to be the child's manner of living? I know it's subtle, but pay attention to details here. Notice that Manoah thinks he's talking to a man. Right? He still doesn't see that this is the angel of the Lord, like his wife did. Notice as well that he calls his wife this woman. You know, apparently she's still not dignified enough to be named. In his language, it's almost as if he's coming to verify her testimony, which, of course, a woman's testimony was not amenable in a a court of law. Did you speak to this woman? i I got to verify this. And furthermore, of course, even though he believes the words about the birth, he still wants more info about the child's manner and mission. It's not just that he wants more info, though. It's that he kind of, I think, wants to be acknowledged as the head of the home here. I mean, who's really in charge of raising this child? Right? He seems to be implying. But the angel does not bow to this request. Apparently, the man could not be trusted to raise his child as he ought. Instead, in verse 13 and 14, the angel responds and says, Of all that I said of the woman, let her be careful. And then 
as I commanded her, let her observe. I already told her. And let her obey. He doesn't press the duty upon the father. So the focus here, it's on the woman. It's on what he's already told her. It's on her duty to obey and observe everything that he commanded. The man is largely just an afterthought here. It's like he's jumping up and down saying, what about me? What about me? Where this really comes out is in how the story concludes. Verse 16, Manoah still didn't know who he was talking to. He asked the man's name. Even the reply comes, it's too wonderful. He still doesn't get it. He offers the man food, which you don't do to an angel. He doesn't catch on to the angel's identity until verse 20, when finally we read that him and his wife finally see the same thing. They finally have those eyes together. They see the angel going into the flame. Only then do we read in verse 21 that Manoah knew who he was talking to there. And yet no sooner than he finally catches up with his wife that he falls behind again. Because it concludes with him being terrified that they're going to die. And the wife has to correct him and teach him in verse 23 what those things really meant. The woman is the hero of the story. What does this mean then? How do we interpret it? Well, I think it underscores again how God delights to reveal himself to those that the world least expects. I think it illustrates how deficient Israel was of strong, capable, faithful men and leaders. So the women, as we've seen all throughout this book, step up. But I also think it foreshadows the role that women will play in the life of Samson, as we'll see. In the book of, as a whole, women are abused and oppressed. They're taken advantage of. They're mistreated. They're sacrificed. They're de- decapitated at the end of the book. That's what happens when people do what is right in their own eyes, the physically strong abuse those physically weaker, and the unbridled passions of the strong rule the day. But ironically, even though this is true of the book as a whole, in Samson's life, we see the strong is ruled by the weak, because Samson himself is ruled by women. The strongest and the mightiest of all physically becomes a pawn in the hand of women, and that leads to his downfall. So the prominence of the husband tells us what is to come, and the paradox of Samson's life. And of course, in the bigger picture of things, the prominence of the woman also looks back to Genesis 3.15, God's promise that He would bring the Messiah through the seed of a woman, and it looks forward to Mary, that faithful servant of the Lord, the mother of God, according to the creed, who will give birth to the Messiah. Long before Christ entered the world, God is showing His faithfulness right here that the seed of the woman is going to come and crush the serpent's head. This woman, Samson's mother then, is a type of Mary. 
She is charged with bringing forth a messianic seed. She typifies the faithful woman to come. She ends up being the model of faith in this story. Let us not also despise or overlook the important role that women play in the furtherance of the gospel, even in our day. Well, moving quickly here, we see a third emphasis, and it's worship. Worship. What I mean really is more of something more like consecration or separation. Worship was just easy for the alliteration, right? It starts with a W. What is the angel's instruction to the woman? He commands her to raise him according to the Nazareth vow. Nazareth is just the Hebrew word for separated or consecrated or devoted. That's all it means. And the details of making a separation vow are found in Numbers chapter 6. It's a vow that one would undertake, usually temporarily, a short-term vow, to totally consecrate oneself to the Lord. What this meant was remaining ritually clean, like a priest. So he had to refrain from wine, from touching dead animals, from shaving, from even eating things like raisins or grapes. And the vow really was kind of a depiction of what was to be true of the people and the nation as a whole. They were to be wholly devoted to the Lord. They were to be totally consecrated to obedience to the commands of God. They were to be pure and undefiled and to abstain from all of the evil of the nations around them. And so what this shows us is this is to be the emphasis of Samson's life from the very beginning. This is his commission. Not strength, not power, not conquering, not might. The essence of his commission is to be separation, devotion, consecration to the Lord. Which further highlights just how tragic his life ends up being. Like Israel whoring after pagan nations around them, Samson too is undone because he whored after the strange foreign women around him as well. What we're to see in this is that it is to be through Samson's obedience that he will save Israel. Or maybe to put it better, it's through Samson's obedience that he will, verse 5, begin to save Israel. It's not through his strength. In fact, his strength is entirely predicated upon his obedience. Israel, first and foremost, needs a leader, needs a savior, needs a deliverer who is obedient, wholly devoted to the Lord. This is why, if you noticed, in verse 12, the angel never answers Manoah's question about how to raise the child. All he needed to know was that Samson was to be devoted to the Lord. So he just ignores his question. And then so often we too, we want a list of things to do, don't we? By nature, we crave law. We want decisions made for us. 
We want simply just to be told what to do. We want, really, ultimately, our responsibility taken out of the matter. Just bring it down from the mountain to me. But like Samson here, really, what we really need to know is him. And we really need to know how he's called us to be devoted to him. Entirely. That's when we're devoted to him and we know him that so many of the details, the questions, the issues, the decisions then fall into place. The matter isn't normally that we don't know enough. The matter, ultimately, the problem is that we have not given ourselves in devotion to what he has revealed already. So I want you to see, Samson's life was to be one of total obedience and devotion. As the woman says in verse 7, the child shall be a Nazareth to God from the womb to the day of his death. The emphasis there on the day of his death. She gets it. She knows what a Nazareth vow means. One's whole life. Don't you see how easily, how naturally this points to Jesus Christ? Jesus was pure and undefiled, sinless, spotless, holy, in every way, devoted to the Lord. He delivered us through His obedience. And like Samson, Jesus was born to die. Called to be a Nazareth in His life, spiritually speaking, came from Nazarene, was called a Nazarene, literally, as He offered full and perfect obedience from the day of His birth to the day of His death. But unlike Samson, who would only begin to save Israel, praise be to the Lord that Jesus finished the job. The angel says of Jesus, in contrast to Samson here, in Matthew one twenty one, he says, He will save His people from their sins. There is no begin to save His people. Jesus will save. Jesus did save. Jesus finished the work. He completed it. And He sat down at the right hand of the throne of the majesty on high. Jesus is the greater Samson. Samson can only begin and typify what would ultimately come in Christ. But let us keep this in mind as we work through this story, that this is His calling and commission. Separation and devotion and consecration, and in many respects, that's the calling of every Christian too, isn't it? That we are to devote, be devoted to the Lord, offer ourselves as a living sacrifice. And brethren, this is only possible because Christ has done it in perfection for us first and foremost. So we see this emphasis on worship. Fourth and finally then, the last point of emphasis is wonder. Wonder. Of course, I'm playing off of... Uh, how the angel of the Lord describes himself here. In verse 17, Manoah, dull and blind, asked the angel's name. It's almost kind of like a dismissive statement. Again, the angel says, why do you ask my name? Seeing it is wonderful. Don't you see who you're talking to? 
Are you so blind? Are you so slow? But what does this mean? Mr. Wonderful, right? What does this mean? Well, the word, the idea of the word, uh, conveys something that is so wonderful that it can't be conceived. It's unimaginable. Basically, the angel is saying, look, I am far more than you have the capacity to take in. You ought to rather adore, not sit and ask questions and try to peer into who I am. But understood, I think, uh, in light of what happens next, we can approach this with greater understanding. This word wonderful is used uh, 13 times in the Old Testament, always in the context of God's acts of salvation and judgment. But in one case, it's used more specifically. Isaiah 9.6 uses it to refer to the Messiah, who is called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. I've already made the case throughout our series in Judges that the angel of the Lord is, in fact, a pre-incarnate appearance of Jesus Christ, the second person of the Trinity, taking on angelic form before his incarnation and appearing to his people. What this shows us is that Christ is active in the Old Testament, that all of Scripture is Christian Scripture. And knowing this, I think we can make sense of how the story ends, and specifically uh, what he does with the sacrifice and how it connects to everything else we've considered. What do we see in verse 20? Manoah and his wife offer a burnt sacrifice, and the angel of the Lord went up into the flame of the altar. We couldn't ask for a clearer picture of what Jesus Christ would come to do in his earthly life and death. He goes into the sacrifice. The sacrifice that pointed to him, that typified his own sacrifice on the cross thousands of years later. It's almost as if the angel here is saying, you want to see what devotion looks like? You want to see what consecration looks like? You want to know what this really means? Here is a picture then of total self-giving. Total self-giving to the Lord. Offering of oneself as a sacrifice. Which to us, that's how Jesus Christ fully and completely offered Himself and His life as a sacrifice to God for our sins. This is the consecration that Samson was called to do. Giving his own life as a sacrifice. But of course, tragically, he did not. He could not. As we will see in the coming weeks. But I also want you to notice how Manoah responds. We see in verse 22 that he finally gets it. He understands the angel and he says, Oh man, we shall surely die for we have seen God. He finally realizes he's seen God. He finally realizes what he's seeing there. And he understands his sinfulness. He feels his guilt and corruption. He knows that no man can see God and live. And he's terrified, rightly. 
But you know what he doesn't get? The gospel. He doesn't get the gospel. Conviction of sin alone is not the gospel. Conviction of sin alone is not to be equated with true faith. So what do we see then? The woman as the hero, stepping in, saving the day again. She gets it, and she teaches him. She becomes a preacher of the gospel to him. She says in verse 23, If the Lord had meant to kill us, he would not have accepted our offering. She doesn't overlook or explain away sin. She sees that a substitute has been provided and she trusts in it. Then she says, if the Lord had meant to kill us, He would not have shown us these things. She's saying, look, our eyes have been opened to who He is. The Lord has revealed Himself to us. He does this to save, not to destroy She rests in the fact that God opening her eyes is enough. That knowing Him is enough. And she finally says, if the Lord had meant to kill us, He would not have announced to us such things as these. If He meant to kill us, He wouldn't have declared to us the things that are to come. He wouldn't have assured us of His presence, of His salvation in the days of head. She hopes and she trusts in what God will do as He's promised. And this is the epitome of true faith, isn't it? And this is what we ought to walk away with here this morning as well. Because of our sin, yes, we deserve to die. We cannot stand and live in the presence of God. The only way, though, that the unholy can live in the presence of the holy is if an innocent substitute is sacrificed and punished to bear that judgment on our behalf. Jesus Christ was sacrificed for you. Jesus Christ was killed for you. Jesus Christ was offered as an atonement for you to appease the wrath of God. And the Lord has accepted His sacrifice on your behalf. And we are called to trust in that sacrificial atonement and not to fear. Not to fear. Fear implies that we still have something to do in this. Fear implies that we still got to do our part, that we got to work salvation because we don't deserve it. We're called to trust that the wrath of God has been satisfied on Christ and to rest in that. And furthermore, in the same way, if God has opened your eyes to the truth, if He's given you new hearts to, to, to believe and eyes to see, then His purposes for you are good. His purposes for you are good and you can rest in that. And if you've heard His declaration of what is to come, resurrection, eternal life, the age to come, He doesn't reveal those things to people who do not believe. And this is why John says in the book of 1 John that this hope purifies us as we look to what is to come. 
As we read in 1 Corinthians 2.9, Paul says, No eye has seen, no ear has heard. The heart of man hasn't even imagined what God has prepared for those who love Him. Things are too wonderful for us to even conceive. And because of this, we ought not to fear. So yes, your life may be full of sin. You may realize that you don't deserve God's favor. Your life may be full of deadness, spiritual barrenness. Your life may be full of prayerlessness, like Israel and Manoah and his wife. But God delights to show mercy when we are at our very weakest. And it's through the proclamation of the gospel that we are called to look at that perfect and sufficient sacrifice, to rest in it, to trust in it, and then in response to that, in view of God's mercies, to offer ourselves as a living sacrifice, which is our spiritual worship. This then, the context of human weakness, the context of a, of a barren woman, the seed of the woman, the context of worship and consecration and devotion, the context of the wonder of who God is in Jesus Christ, this, all of which was proclaimed to, Moses, uh, to Manoah and his wife then, is declared to us as well, the same gospel, and we have the full revelation of it in Jesus Christ. It's no wonder then that Samson's name means burning sun. It means sun flame. And as we read from the Gospel of Luke earlier in Luke chapter 1, when Zechariah is prophesying of this angel, excuse me, of this child to come, what does he say? Because of the tender mercy of our God, verse 78 whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in the darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. Samson is a burning light, but he only could, could only typify and foreshadow the light of the world to come, the ultimate light that enlightens every man, Jesus Christ. Well, I hope that you've seen a picture of Samson here this morning that is a little bit different than how he's often understood in our culture. And I hope that you see the context from which his life will emerge is one of weakness, is one of women, one of wonder, one of worship and consecration. Only then can we rightly interpret what he means and what he means in accordance with the gospel. May God give us the faith to believe and to hear these things today. Amen. Let's pray.